0: Well, I just want to thank you again for being here tonight. We're going to be ambitious this evening. I think even if you're not in school anymore, there's that age that comes around when it's May or June, you sort of feel yourself needing a finish line, don't you? You feel that a little bit. We're going to go all the way to the finish line tonight, Lord willing. I've got, I think, more blanks than we've ever had on any paper tonight. So if you can make it through tonight, you can make it through any night. And we're going to try to get through it fairly quickly this evening And um, if you get tired, um, you know, reach over to your spouse and just have them do the other half. Whatever you need to do tonight, you know, bear one another's burdens and just get through it together. You know, if you love Jesus, if you love your mama, just keep on going. Keep filling in blanks and we'll do it together. Uh, We're going to try to get through 24 verses of scripture in Luke chapter 10. I'm the kind of person who probably tends to move a little bit too fast sometimes. Uh, through things, but I I feel like I'd I'd rather do that than the other. That just sort of the side of the road I tend to to fall off on sometimes. And um, I've never been the kind of pastor who can do a real good, you know, sermon on two or three verses. It takes me, I got to have a bigger group of verses there. So tonight we're going to try to get through that. Uh, Verses one through 24. So if we could, I want to go ahead and say a word of prayer for us, and then we're going to read the passage. And then we're going to just dive right in and bit by bit walk through what I think we see uh, here in this passage. Father, thank you for the chance that we all have to be here. As uh, Pastor Mark mentioned, we just continue to lift up those who are on our prayer list, those who are just walking through difficulty. Lord, would you be there for them in a powerful way. May they know the truth of Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 46, that God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in times of trouble. Lord, I just pray uh, that they would know your peace and your help in a special way. Um, Lord, for others who are on our hearts and minds who didn't get mentioned tonight, Lord, we just add those uh, to the the pleas, uh, the the requests that we bring before you now. So, Lord, will you bless our time in your word? Will you help us to take note of the action that Jesus calls us to? Will you help us to be people of faith? Uh, And will you help us to be people who respond in a way that would honor you? And we thank you for the wonder and the miracle of our salvation when we've trusted in Jesus. And it's in His name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, we've got several things tonight, so let's dive right into the passage here. And we're going to read uh, up through verse 20 uh, to begin with, and then we'll do the last bit on its own. So here we go, Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your uh, town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes." But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus had a special task for 72. This is one of those moments where we realize that it's not just Jesus and the 12 who are walking around everywhere together. There's often a bigger group that is involved there. Uh, We've read earlier in the book of Acts that spoke about the women that were with Jesus and the disciples often, that they were the ones who were, uh, I don't know that funding is necessarily the way we would think, but they were providing for the ministry in a number of ways to keep it going. And so there's a a group that's there. And in this 72 that are sent out, uh, Luke is the only one who gives us that number. Uh, Matthew and Mark each focus on the 12 disciples and their role in this. But Luke clarifies for us that it's a bigger group than simply the 12, that goes out, the Lord appointed 72 and sent them out two by two into different towns, areas all around uh, the areas of Galilee. And so uh, let's just dive right into our outline tonight. The first point I've got for you is that Jesus calls each one of us into action to prepare the way for him. Jesus calls each one of us into action. When we've known Christ and trusted in Christ, he's called us into action. And that action is preparing the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is the ultimate one who fulfilled this. He was the one who came more than anyone else to prepare the way for the Lord. But for these 72, Jesus is presenting something that I think he also presents to us. The best we can ever do is prepare the way for the Lord. You and I can't save anybody. We can't convince anybody. Paul uses language like persuade, that we're called to be persuasive in the right kind of ways and and to speak to people as if what we're saying matters and to recognize that. But you and I can't do anything anything on the inside of someone's heart and mind, only God can do that. And so we're always in the business of preparing the way uh, for Jesus. That's the best we can do. And he calls these 72 uh, into the same role that they're going to go out and they're going to get called into action you know, it's interesting is the more that time goes by, I think the more all of us and just the nature of our lives and otherwise, I, I find myself less called into action physically as the time goes on, don't we? You know, I, I saw something on, on the, uh, some something this morning uh, that said, you know, when I was three, I could fall out of a triple bunk bed and be just fine. You know, now if I sleep with the wrong pillow, I'm, I'm bad for three days, you know, I just can't do it. And so, as time goes on, we tend to get more comfortable, more sedentary, perhaps in a number of areas. If we're not careful, we'll get more sedentary in our faith as well. And so, there's this reminder that while Jesus has called us to observe and to respond in worship, and those are good things, he's also called us and is calling us into action and so the question for each one of us then becomes, Lord, how do you want me to be intentional in my life? Lord, will you lead me in conversations, in relationships, in, in a number of areas? Uh, Father, will you help me to do uh, what I should do? That Jesus calls each one of us into action. No matter what our age, no matter what our, our time in life We are not called to a place of spiritual retirement, spiritual resignation from what uh, God's plan is. And and I think that's one of the things I've heard from so many people through the years, folks who are coming to the end of their time on earth is is I I can't tell you how many people who I thought would have just resigned themselves to no longer having a purpose, perhaps because they were confined to a bed or whatever it might be, just said, I know God's still got me here for a purpose. I'm just trying to pray through uh, what that's going to be. You know, we want to be about a purpose, what God has for us. Uh, Jesus is calling these disciples not just to be observers, but to be called into action. And then he goes on that not only they're going to go into every town and place where he's about to go, he says to them in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, if you listen to the news, if you were to have your your mind shaped by sometimes the cynicism of our day and age, we would tend to think the harvest is not very good, but you know, we got a decent amount of laborers. And Jesus says something quite different, and it applied in His day, I think it still applies in our day as well. We often don't see just how plentiful the harvest is, and because of that, we are not quick to labor we sometimes can be cynical instead so number 2 one of the reasons we're hesitant to labor is that we don't realize how plentiful the harvest is you've probably seen these little skits and things over time you know i remember seeing one of a of a, a husband that could uh, or excuse me a wife that could put on glasses to see what her husband saw and so she would put on glasses, and when she, said, you know, she put those glasses on, she could sit in the living room, and what she saw as a pile of laundry before, as she put those husband glasses on, that laundry was gone. She couldn't see it anymore, <laughs> you know. As she was in the kitchen and saw a big trash uh, uh, container that was full of trash, ready to be taken out, flowing over, she put those glasses on. Sure enough, looked like the trash was totally fine. And, you know, on and on down the line. The joke was she just needed to see things through her husband's eyes because he was not being very observant. What would it be like to see the world through Jesus's eyes? What would it be like to actually see the hope that's not based in a fool's hope, but in God's hope for what can can be accomplished through him. And what would it be like if the church of Jesus Christ was optimistic? What would it be like if we truly hoped and believed and, and looked towards what Jesus would have us do? I think that all of us recognize that's what we want to be able to do and to be to see the world as best we can, that God would give us the best of abilities to view our neighbors, our family members, our friends, our co-workers, as people created in Jesus's, uh, you, you know, cre- created in God's image and created with, with Jesus's eyes seeing for them. Uh, what it would mean uh, to trust in him. And so no matter where you fall on the sovereignty spectrum of how sovereign versus free will, all that, the the clear biblical indicator for us is to recognize that the harvest is plentiful, that there's much there and what is needed is more people to respond into action for where Christ would call them. One of the reasons we're hesitant to labor is that we don't realize how plentiful the harvest is. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors, laborers into his harvest. It is very right for us to bring the needs of people and what others are going through to the Lord. It is very right for us to do that. If, if we're not careful, though, sometimes in a Christian environment, when we c- call on prayer requests and otherwise, if we're not careful, the only thing we'll pray for are medical and physical needs in people's lives. And so Jesus is driving home not only go out there and get to work but pray that God would call out those who are being called out, pray that God would arrange, God that would move in people's hearts so that the labor that is needed could be done. And so we recognize that that's a spiritual battle from the very beginning. It's not just that we need more volunteers. It's not just that we need more people who are excited about this or that, but pray that God would move on people's hearts in such a way that the kind of labor that is done uh, would honor what the Lord's plans um, uh, for each of us are. And then he, he says this in verse 3, go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I, I do have a few pictures tonight. I, I don't know if you, um, it, I've never seen a wolf in real life. That is a full-size husky next to a wolf. So if you've never gotten a chance to see one up close, it, if you don't know huskies, there's a lab, full-size lab next to a wolf. So they're intimidating creatures. Not that you would not be intimidated anyway, but um, I normally feel real good around a dog until he gets above my knees, and then I'm just not quite sure, you know, what to do there. Uh, I got bit running a few years ago, not real bad, but that sort of made me think differently than I ever had about dogs before. I'm sending you out as a lamb uh, among uh, wolves. Lambs aren't even full-grown sheep. And sheep aren't very good matchups to uh, to take on a wolf. You probably have heard, if you've been in church a while, all the things about sheep. You know how about how unintelligent they are, and we, you know, a lot's been said, and written about those kind of things, and it's very much true. If you were to speak about what defense mechanisms a sheep has, here's one that I remember hearing years ago, that if you were to have a cluster of sheep that were together out in a field and a wolf or some other animal was to come on as a predator, the sheep have a defense mechanism that they take against that animal. Do you know what they do? They go and they stand in a circle and they face toward the center, away from wherever the predator is. And the wolf walks around like you and me at Golden Corral, deciding exactly (laughs) which dish he wants that evening and takes it, you know, right there. There there is no defense that a sheep has against a wolf, none. It's not even that they try and fail, it's that they don't even have the capacity to know how to even begin to take on a wolf. And so Jesus says, you're going on a vacation, boys, here's what I got for you. If I could compare it, I'm going to say you're going out like a lamb to wolves, now, I don't know about you, I don't know how many of us would want to take that assignment if we truly knew what that meant, um Paul is going to say much later on about what it means in in a church uh, environment, church life for wolves to be there. Jesus in Matthew 7 is another passage where he talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. And so we see this kind of language uh, used a good bit. But Jesus is saying what you're about to go into are intimidating circumstances and you're going to have to be dependent uh, on the Lord. Number three is this, dependency on Jesus is good because lambs don't bring much to the battle. Dependency on Jesus is good. One author I remember reading years ago named Erwin McManus, his book Chasing Daylight, he talked about people of faith, exalt faith as a wonderful thing, and yet we spend most of our lives trying to avoid circumstances where we need to put faith into action. That we call on faith is a great thing, but if we're not careful, we spend most of our lives trying to arrange our days, our, our years to where faith is not truly needed. And so as Jesus is about to send these guys into it, uh, what, he, what he doesn't say is, go on your way, pack several big bags, make sure you got this, make sure you got that, make sure, you know, for every circumstance you're covered. He doesn't say that. He says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. I don't know how many of you would be excited if I dropped you off at Greensboro Airport tonight and said, board the first plane, take no money, take no change of clothes, and take no extra shoes you'd say, I cannot imagine doing that. There's no way. Now, I don't think Jesus is giving a prescription for all of us when we serve on mission to say, don't take anything with you. What I do think he's saying is that part of the role of what you're going to be involved in is going to be Intertwined with the dependency that you're going to have on me. So, for this mission, I know that you won't need more than I'm sending you out with. And so, go there and have the dependency that you are in create scenarios where you move in faith and you look towards the Lord because you're not leaning back on what you brought with you. So, for us, if we're not careful, we'll spend our whole lives trying to not be dependent on the Lord at all. But often, the Lord does His greatest work not only in others' lives but in our lives when we're able to be dependent on Him. And so I've sort of cheated and added some extra blanks here for point A. It just says mission and faith go together. Mission and faith go together. I've been blessed to get to lead different mission teams in different countries through the years and uh, trips in, in different areas and, and I think there's sort of some common things I've found based on people's personalities or otherwise. There's some folks and some of you in here might say, well, I'm that person too, where, where it's really hard if we were to have a day where we said, okay, we're going to go out and serve today. Th- there might be some of you in here and say, okay, I need an itinerary from 8.30 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night to know what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, how long it's going to take, what the temperature is going to be and what food we're going to have for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I've taken some before that said, you know, every hour and a half, I've got to have coffee from somewhere or this trip is going to derail real quickly. You know, each one of us have our own things that we just feel like if I'm going to do something, I've got to have this or I've got to have that. And uh, I have not known a missionary yet that served on the field that was able to keep that kind of mindset over time. If you've ever gotten a chance to go on a mission trip, at least my experience, a lot of times it's, we're going to try this today. If it doesn't work, we're going to pivot and go over here. We want to be able to respond to where God leads us, not to say, I'm sorry, Lord, I've got 12 other things on my itinerary before I can get to you today. Mission and faith go together. When we're not being held back by everything we've brought with us, by everything we've uh, distracted ourselves with along the way, we're able to lean into what God has for us. The second point there, point B, is something else interesting that we see here. Mission and… I've sort of got two blanks in one. You can just do one if you like. But home slash hospitality go together. Mission and home slash hospitality go together. In 2023, and it's been this way for a little while, if you and I were to talk about big moves of God and big moves of evangelism, we normally might think of something like a Billy Graham crusade, we would think of a large event that takes place at some large venue, and if God's going to do something wonderful, there's going to be getting a lot of people together, there's going to be organization, there's going to be leadership, there's going to be funding, and all these kind of things, and God certainly can work through those kinds of ways. However, if you go through the halls of any church in America, you'll find that the number one reason that folks that are there are there is not because of a giant event that took place at some point. There will be some, perhaps, that are there. Most people overwhelmingly will say, either someone in my friend or family group brought me here. And so, connection is still the greatest evangelism tool that God has ever used, And so Jesus says, you're going to go into a town and whatever house you enter first say peace to this house or peace be to this house. When you go in, you're going to find a place to stay. This was a hospitality culture. Most of you would be a little bit unnerved if somebody showed up on your front doorstep seven o'clock at night and said, peace be to you. I'm staying here tonight. And We said, "Um, I'm not too sure about that. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know about that. This is a culture where hospitality was more the norm, and for some of us, we've, we've swung the pendulum so far that we're scared to death to have anybody in our yard or anybody in our home, and we have to be real careful. You know, one of the big questions for us that I think would be appropriate for us to think through and ask is what evangelism has our dining room table been involved in in the last year? Who's come in the doors of our house And whose doors have we gone in in order to be able to break bread together and just see what God might do? Because I think that's one of the greatest avenues that is missing in the church today. We've allowed Satan to convince our whole country and Christians are a part of that to be able to say, look, this is your tribe. Your tribe is people who politically think this, they make this much money, they live in this kind of house, they have this many kids or not, you know, it's all these categories that we've broken ourselves down into. If we're not careful, one of the greatest ministries we could ever have, simply spending time with people and caring about them and doing something as crazy and wild as having dinner with somebody that we don't know that well who needs to know Jesus becomes the greatest evangelism avenue that we are missing. And we can have big budgets as a church, we can do big programs, and those things we pray that God will use in great ways. But the greatest historical means for people coming to faith in Christ are family and friends who care enough to share and to love and to be there. And so how hospitable has your evangelism been? How how much have you thought... What, is, what does God want to do with my dining room table and my meals and, and my backyard for the sake of the kingdom of God? Now Jesus gets into the part where some of us as Baptists are really like. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Well, that's, that's, you know, as far as being able to eat whatever they provide, you hope that's good. Some of you have been on mission trips before where you're claiming that verse and saying, Lord, please just help whatever this is to, you know, to work out okay. Do not go from house to house, stay wherever that is. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick that the disciples are given the special ability to be able to see miracles take place through the power of God given to them by Christ. Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, I've known some Baptists through the years that love that part. Say, boy, I can't, I just, I'm hoping this town's going to reject me. I'd love to just shake my, my uh, dust off my feet right here, you know, for all of them. And whenever they don't receive you, what a, what an interesting thing. Jesus calls on the disciples to move on. Number four, if, if people aren't receptive There, and I probably should have given the name, uh, the word often or something like that. There's sometimes or there often comes a time uh, to move on in some cases. There you go. I did it there. There comes a time to move on in some cases. That Jesus is giving them the understanding that it may not go well. And if it doesn't go well, allow yourself to move forward and to go to the next destination that I have for you. And to be able to declare to the town in that cultural way, in a way that made sense for them to be able to say, boy, we've, we've perhaps passed up on something, a word that has come that God wants to give us. And so there's a declaration Uh, for for doing that. I won't be able to give you, you ought to ask Pastor Brandon what the 21st century equivalent of shaking the dust off your feet, you know, might be. My kids are really good at sticking their tongue out at each other at different points and uh, that's the only thing I can think of right now, but I don't think that's appropriate for believers uh, to do. But don't miss at the end of verse 11 that the culmination of shaking the dust off of their feet is to say this, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so even in leaving, what they are leaving with is not condemnation, it's the truth that they need to realize and to find hope in. The kingdom of God has come near because the king has arrived. If people aren't receptive, there comes a time to move on in some cases. Now, I do want to clarify some things because I think this can be a point of confusion uh, for some folks in church life. And so, if this seems really basic to you or, of course, I would know that, then that's great. But I've I've seen sometimes through the years this become a point of difficulty. Letter A there, I think it's important to say that that does not apply in anywhere near the same way uh, for people who are in your life, family, friends… And so this text would not be a reason for you to say, uh, you know, my brother who's somewhat estranged to me or or maybe we don't have the greatest relationship, I've tried to reach him for Christ for the last three months and I'm just going to write him off completely because Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet and walk away. I don't think that's what is being described here. These are strangers who have been brought into a connection together, and after that, there's a plan that God has. You know, there's going to be a different relationship you have with people who you don't know well and people who you've been called into life with. I've heard of churches where folks would pray for 50 years. I remember hearing a story not too long ago of a man who'd been prayed for by one church for 50 years before he finally came to church with his wife and trusted in Christ. 50 years of praying. And I'm so thankful in cases like that that people didn't shake the dust off their feet and give up. You know, sometimes it's a long road and there's people in your life you've been called to walk a long road with. Don't give up. You know, family, friends, don't decide, well, I'm just going to, your relationship might change, different decisions that folks make. You may say, well, it's not, you know, there's going to be ways that this has to sort of be, you know, it's not going to be the same as it always was, whatever it might be, but don't give up on people and don't abandon people. B is likewise, you know, to that, whether it's family or friends or just other people in your life, it's really important not to treat people simply as, and this is the historical Southern Baptist word that we've used, but I've never cared for it very much, prospects. Prospects. You know, you know what a prospector was in the old days, right? It's the guy that goes over to a mountain and hits it with a big chisel, and if he finds gold, then he, he stays, and if not, he goes to the next mountain. You know, prospect is a word I don't know if any of us would want to be categorized as. We sort of get what it means. These are people who are prospective members, prospective attenders. That's not, it's not necessarily bad and it's understanding, but we can have a wrong understanding of that if the way we start to think of people is potential converts or, you know, people who have either accepted or rejected. People's ultimate definition, according to, to all things, is, is not what we feel about their status. It's that they've been made in God's image. And so for someone in your life who you've tried so hard to reach for the sake of Christ, and after 12 months of doing that, you walk away and just leave them, and they say, well, that person never cared about me to begin with. I was just a statistic to them. That's not good for the kingdom of God. Now, there may be ways that you, you know, you just have to at some point the relationship isn't what it was or you've got to focus in different areas, but, but be very careful about people in your life feeling like the only reason that you care about them is because you're trying to check off the box that they made a certain decision. They might not fully be able to understand that what you're interested in is their heart and their standing before God. Be careful about treating people too much uh, as simply a, a prospective person to reach, care for them as human beings. But I think where it's most applied, letter C here, but don't chase someone who rejects Jesus at the expense of those who need to be reached out to. There does come a time where you say, the effort and the energy that I'm putting in here, I'm going to have to trust the Lord because I, I think, you know, I've done all I can and I'm going to have to leave them to, to God. and, and you know, not abandon my call in other people's lives for the sake of one person. Sometimes we've got to give people time. Vance Havner, some of you know his name. I may have given this quote before. It's one of my favorites, but he talked about the story of the prodigal son. And he said, you know, if the social gospel had been around in the days of the prodigal son, somebody would have given the prodigal son a bed and a sandwich and he never would have went home to his dad. Sometimes people have got to be on their own and to let God deal with them. Jesus is able to tell the rich young ruler, you know, go ahead and sell all your possessions and then come follow me. And the man goes away sad and Jesus doesn't run after him because he understands and trusts the Holy Spirit to work on that man's heart. And so for us, we're often called to the same thing. We're not going to abandon people, so to speak, but we're going to say, you know, I've done all I can and it's, it's time that I recognize that God's also placed me here. And the opportunities, I've only got so much time and so much Uh, ability. I I think ultimately Jesus has got a calling for all the places he's going to go and he knows if people are going to be adamantly um, uh, opposed to to me and my work, you might as well move on because that's not going to change unless God does something in their heart. Now, Jesus goes on and talks about the fact that it would be more bearable on on that day, pointing forward to the day of judgment for Sodom, uh, then for, for that town, whatever town would reject them. He goes on to talk about uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, both uh, cities or towns in Jewish territory. Then he mentions Tyre and Sidon, which are up both in kind of the borderline Gentile territory. They were not made up uh, mostly of Jews. And so to say, if, if, if these great works had been done in those places that don't even know the Lord, they would have repented. But here, you know, where you've gotten so comfortable and so callous to everything that God wants to say to you, you know, you've had such an opportunity to believe. And when you've rejected, there's going to be a a judgment that's that's a a different level for that. So number five, there's judgment attached to those in close proximity to Jesus when they reject him. This is not given a a full breakdown in every way in Scripture, but we do see several indications in the New Testament that there will be some level of of judgment that will be different uh, and be harsher for those who were given great opportunities uh, to believe. For those in this time period, they had Jesus walking among them. How many people in the southeastern United States that had a church on every corner and perhaps people in their lives who loved them and shared the gospel for them, their standing before the Lord someday is going to be different than someone who lived uh, in the jungles of South Asia and was never able to hear the gospel? That there's a way in which someone who rejects the message of Jesus when it's clearly given. You see passages like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 talking about those that the Holy Spirit's worked in their heart and life and then ultimately to reject and to walk away from Jesus, that that's a, a fearful thing to do. Uh, that it's something that, that indicates um, uh, just a real wrong taking place in their heart. And so Jesus gives that judgment's attached to those uh, in close proximity uh, to Jesus when they reject him, when they they, uh, refuse to believe. And then he says this, um, verse 16, the one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Number six, as I was thinking through this verse, I, I just couldn't help but come up with this. I want to be close enough to Jesus that when I'm rejected, I know they're rejecting Jesus and not just my personality and my opinions. I want to be close enough to Jesus that when I'm rejected, I have confidence that what is being rejected is not my personality and my opinions, but but literally Jesus. I can stand arm in arm to say what I want to communicate. I can't do that perfectly. None of us can do that but we trust the Lord to work through our hearts. We, we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to give us words to say. We trust that God is going to mend the places that we leave broken. But when we try to do so in, with a heart that honors the Lord, Jesus is the one that's going to be at work. And I don't need my, my personal opinions, my political opinions, my whatever else it might be. That doesn't have to cloud what's there. And so in gospel conversation, in times where I'm hoping that people will be able to see and to hear the Lord Jesus, I want that to happen in such a way that I can feel confident that what I sought to give them was Jesus. I didn't just try to make somebody in the image that I thought was what, you know, the ultimate person was. I want the gospel to be uh, what is either received or rejected, not something different. And so Jesus gives this whole perspective and he sends them out. And you can sort of imagine uh, the, um, the disciples at this point, you know, many of us in here before have gone uh, door-to-door evangelism and, and things like that. We've got a group of men who's been going out uh, every other week, uh, Bill and Louis Thibodeau and uh, Jeff Mazze and, and Drew Thomas and uh, Blaney uh, Prilliman and, and a number of guys have been going out every other week knocking on doors. Some of us have been door-to-door evangelism and we knock on the door and we begin to pray this prayer, Lord, please don't let anybody be home. if we're not careful we just think I just don't know if it's going to go real well and I've I've been on some door-to-door evangelism that hadn't gone real well but I've also seen some great things at times too verse 17 the 72 return with joy they didn't return in despair they didn't return saying Boy, that was really a wasted exercise. Let me tell you all the crazy things that happened to me, Jesus. They don't do that. They return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were able to return and to recognize, Jesus, you did amazing things through our seeking to follow you and to share the truth of the kingdom. There were amazing things that happened. Number seven, laboring brings joy even in difficulty, now, there's, there's hard days, and like I said, all evangelism doesn't look like just one category uh, for, for where we're called to do this or to do that. It, it doesn't always get boiled into just one. When you're sharing Christ with a, a family or friend, when you're caring for people, when you're seeking to build relationships in the places where you are, when you've got that coworker who's, you know, allowed you to have conversations in, in such a way that are different, and uh, you've got this, you know, viewpoint of Jesus that the harvest is plentiful, and there's so much that there, when we can have optimism and hope and find joy, we can re- truly see things and to say, you know what, here's the great things that God did when we sought to, to trust in Him. Laboring brings joy even in difficulty. And so the 72 return, they say that even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then a verse that has been written about in very, very many ways. Jesus says in verse 18, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so much ink has been spilled for for good reason to talk about the link here between passages in Isaiah and otherwise in the Old Testament to say was what Jesus is saying here linking backwards to the fact uh, of of Satan's fall from heaven, his casting out uh, from heaven... Um, The language here falling from, you know, from heaven is a little bit soft. It's, the the Greek is quite literally out of heaven. And so there's this casting out uh, that's taken place. And so is Jesus looking backward to what has happened before? But yet the context of what is being said is being said at a time where the disciples were saying, we saw even the demons be cast out uh, in your name. We saw that. And in that moment, Jesus says, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now what I have for you tonight is not, you know, indications on blood moons and, and future events and all those kind of things. I don't have that for you. Can I give you the safest thing that we can say without a doubt is being said in that verse in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 18. It's this, number 8. Jesus' kingdom has is and will continue to show the defeat of Satan. Jesus' kingdom has, it is, it will continue to show it has never been an even match The defeat of Satan has been planned and moving all along. And so Jesus' defeat is going to continue at the cross. It's going to continue in his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, on the disciples there in in the upper room. Uh, And then at Pentecost in Acts 2, we're going to see thousands of people who come to faith in Christ. In, In all of that, we see God moving and Satan's defeat going further and further and further. And we look around today in our own world and we say, he's not defeated yet. Yeah, but he is being defeated. And it's all in motion. And so past, present, future, we find that there. And y'all can figure out all the other, you know, charts and, and timelines and everything else later, but I think that's the big thing that without a doubt Jesus is saying in this moment. I've given you authority, verse 19, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven." It is a greater miracle that through faith in Jesus Christ, our names could be written in the book of life. It is a greater miracle that that could take place than that any demonic or spiritual or medical thing could take place by our hands. The greatest miracle in eternity is that a holy God could redeem sinful man through the perfect sacrifice of his son. And it's in that defeat, not only of our guilt and shame, but of death itself that we find the greatest wonder. Uh, First Peter, Peter writes about angels longing to look on what's been promised to believers. Uh, and in all that, the fulfillment of all the prophecy through Christ and uh, even through what the early church was living through. Jesus echoes that same sentiment to say, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Number nine, our salvation is the most incredible miracle of all. Our salvation is the most incredible miracle of all. Now, with our time being short, let me read these last four verses, 21 through 24. In that same hour... Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The great among you have missed what you are able to understand. Jesus rejoices that those who are not in the lead category are the ones who are understanding and believing and receiving. That there's a rejoicing that Jesus has to say, Father, I, I praise you for the fact that you have not used earthly levels of categorization to determine who will come to you, but know it's been working in hearts of people. And even when those have responded that don't fit the right categories and they don't have the right credentials, and they're not this and they're not that, that the difference maker is Jesus Christ in their heart and life. There was a professor at. Um, Wheaton College some years ago, who used to tell his classes that came in, always remember that God spoke to Balaam through his donkey, and he's been speaking through donkeys ever since. (laughs) And so, should God choose to speak through you, don't think too highly of yourself, and don't miss what God may have to say, even if it comes from an unlikely place, because God spoke to Balaam through his donkey, and he's been speaking through donkeys ever since. You know, we might, the best of us to the worst of us in here, we, we're donkeys at the end of the day. We're those who need the radical forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But it's the difference in often the simple things. I, I remember seeing an Adrian Rogers clip not long ago where many of you are familiar with him. He was speaking and he, he said something that sort of sent his church into shock in a moment. they didn't quite, They weren't sure how to handle it. And he said, you know, reading the Bible is not truly how you'll come to know uh, God in its fullest sense and the only sense that that's not the only way. And everybody as Baptists thought, what in the world are we supposed to do with that? And he said, you know, it's possible to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to do this, to do that, to parse Greek words and to learn Hebrew and to go here and to do that. All those kind of things, ultimately, if they're done without a desire to know Christ more fully, they'll lead nowhere. That our goal ultimately isn't knowledge, it's not somehow impressing anybody, it's knowing Jesus. And Jesus talks again and again about the childlike faith uh, that he's called us to. Number 10, don't forget the blessing of knowing Jesus. Don't forget the blessing of knowing Jesus. There was a little boy in a Sunday school class who uh, was going to go on an Easter egg hunt with his class this little boy, like sometimes happens in churches, was was somebody who had a lot of special needs. And so for him to even be in that class was something his parents had tried to find a church where he could go in a class and they had someone who could care for him because some of the needs that he had, he just couldn't make it in a regular class. And so this little boy had found a place because of a, a young lady that was in that class that would help him. And he was just not quite like some of the other kids, but they were having an Easter egg hunt. And as they went into Easter egg hunt and they found eggs, the teacher said, I want everybody to bring an egg back in here and look around nature and find something that reminds you of the Lord Jesus. I want you to put that inside that egg and you bring those eggs back in here and we'll talk about what you found. So sure enough, these kids would open it up and they said, well, I found this little branch that was in the shape of a cross and that reminds me of Jesus. And one person went and another and another. I found a rock that reminds me that Jesus is the rock, you know, just like he talked about the cornerstone in the New Testament and all this, and they came to that little boy, and that little boy, the best he could, opened his egg, and there was nothing inside the egg. Some of the kids started to snicker, and they said, he doesn't even have anything in his egg. Well, this little boy, even the situation that he was in, he, tears started to well up in his eyes, and he started to get, you know, kind of personally affected, and he said, it's empty because the tomb is empty, and that little boy came to faith in Christ in that class, and the kids always remembered what he said. And because of some of the medical conditions that he was going through, he only lived a few more years before going home to be with the Lord. And it was at his funeral that every little kid that was in that Sunday school class went up to the casket and placed an empty egg there and the flowers and everything else because of the impact that one little statement from that little boy had made. And all the volumes of seminaries that they could have gone to and all the bookshelves and all of the media and and philosophy and everywhere else that they would turn wouldn't have made the impact that the simple realization of knowing that because Jesus Christ has emptied his tomb, all of our tombs will be empty as well if we trust in him. And so God hasn't called us to great knowledge and to great wisdom above being called to know him, to love him, rejoice in him and to be moved in action where he'd lead us. Father, thank you for the simple obedience that you've called each one of us to. Lord, there's those of us in this room that would be called into action in various ways. Perhaps it's uh, in our own families, our own dining room tables. Asking the question, Lord, of what you would use the meals that take place in our own house to do so that we might know others and love them and seek to speak truth to them. Lord for others it would be in making contact with those at work and those at school and and those perhaps in neighborhoods and places where uh, whether it's door to door or otherwise being able to meet folks and speak to them about the hope that is in us through Christ. And Lord from the greatest to the least to the things that we recognize are the most supernatural that would take place and the things that seem the most simple. Lord, would you help us to have the faith of a child? Would you help help us to recognize that knowing Jesus is more important than anything else and that the greatest miracle in all of eternity is that Jesus Christ could save me? And so, Father, would you give each one of us that heart and that desire? We praise you and look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.